0: The Shadow Kingdom The Shadow Kingdom, an 11,000-word novelette, was first published in the August 1929 issue of Weird Tales magazine. However, it was written over a period of a year or so, starting in 1926 when Robert E. Howard was just 20 years old. It is the first work written in the sword and sorcery genre for which Howard would later become famous, and the first cull of Atlantis story. Its pacing and character development are noticeably less professional than that of Howard's later work, as might be expected given its author's youth at the time it was written. Many things about Cull will be very familiar to Conan fans, but what's arguably most noticeable about it is the elements familiar from the Conan stories that are missing from this one. In particular, its setting, which Howard called the Thurian Age some 40,000 years before the present, before Atlantis sank, lacks the echoes drawn from modern myth that would make the later Hyborian Age stories feel germane to our modern lives. Chapter 1. A King Comes Riding The blare of the trumpets grew louder, like a deep golden tide surge, like the soft booming of the evening tides against the silver beaches of Volusia. The throng shouted, women flung roses from the roofs as the rhythmic chiming of silver hosts came clearer, and the first of the mighty array swung into view in the broad white street that curved round the golden spired Tower of Splendor. First came the trumpeters, slim youths, clad in scarlet, riding with a flourish of long, slender golden trumpets, next the bowmen, tall men from the mountains— and behind these the heavily armed footmen, their broad shields clashing in unison, their long spears swaying in perfect rhythm to their stride. Behind them came the mightiest soldiery in all the world, the red slayers, horsemen, splendidly mounted, armed in red from the helmet to spur. Proudly they sat their steeds, looking neither to the right nor to the left, but aware of the shouting for all that. Like bronze statues they were, and there was never a waver in the forest of spears that reared above them. Behind those proud and terrible ranks came the motley files of the mercenaries, fierce, wild-looking warriors, men of Mu and Ka'u, and of the hills of the east and the isles of the west. They bore spears and heavy swords, and a compact group that marched somewhat apart were the bowmen of Lemuria. Then came the light foot of the nation, and more trumpeters brought up the rear a brave sight, and a sight which aroused a fierce thrill in the soul of Kull, king of Volusia. Not on the topaz throne at the front of the regal tower of splendor sat Kull, but in the saddle mounted on a great stallion, a true warrior king. His mighty arms swung up in reply to the salutes as the hosts passed. His fierce eyes passed the gorgeous trumpeters with a casual glance, rested longer on the following soldiery. They blazed with a ferocious light as the red slayers halted in front of him with a clang of arms and a rearing of steeds and tendered him the crown salute. They narrowed slightly as the mercenaries strode by. They saluted no one, the mercenaries. They walked with shoulders flung back, eyeing Cull boldly and straightly, albeit with a certain appreciation. Fierce eyes, unblinking, savage eyes, staring from beneath shaggy manes and heavy brows. And Cull gave back a like stare. He granted much to brave men, and there were no braver in all the world, not even among the wild tribesmen who now disowned him. But Cull was too much the savage to have any great love for these. There were too many feuds. Many were age-old enemies of Cull's nation, and though the name of Cull was now a word accursed among the mountains and valleys of his people, and though Cull had put them from his mind, yet the old hates, the ancient passions still lingered. For Cull was no Volusian, but an Atlantean, the army swung out of sight around the gem-blazing shoulders of the Tower of Splendor, and Kull reined his stallion about and started toward the palace at an easy gate, discussing the review with the commanders that rode with him, using not many words but saying much. The army is like a sword, said Kull, and must not be allowed to rust. So down the street they rode, and Kull gave no heed to any of the whispers that reached his hearing from the throngs that still swarmed the streets. That is Kull, see? Valka! But what a king! And what a man! Look at his arms and his shoulders! And an undertone of more sinister whispering. Kull, ha! accursed usurper from the pagan isles! Ay, shame to Volusia that a barbarian sits on the throne of kings. Little did Kull heed. Heavy-handed had he seized the decaying throne of ancient Volusia, and with a heavier hand did he hold it, a man against a nation. After the council chamber, the social palace, where Cull replied to the formal and laudatory phrases of the lords and ladies with carefully hidden grim amusement at such frivolities, then the lords and ladies took their formal departure, and Cull leaned back upon the ermine throne and contemplated matters of state until an attendant requested permission from the great king to speak and announced an emissary from the Pictish embassy. Cull brought his mind back from the dim mazes of Volusian statecraft where it had been wandering, and gazed upon the Pict with little favor. The man gave back the gaze of the king without flinching. He was a lean, hipped, massive-chested warrior of middle height, dark like all his race, and strongly built. From strong, immobile features gazed dauntless and inscrutable eyes. The chief of the councillors, Kanu of the tribe, right hand of the king of Pictum, sends greetings and says, There is a throne at the feast of the rising moon for Kull, king of kings, lord of lords, emperor of Volusia. Good, answered Kull. Say to Kanu the ancient, ambassador of the western isles, that the king of Volusia will quaff wine with him when the moon floats over the hills of Zalgara. Still the Pict lingered. I have a word for the king, not, with a contemptuous flirt of his hand, for these slaves. Cole dismissed the attendants with a word, watching the picked warily. The man stepped nearer and lowered his voice. Come alone to the feast tonight, Lord King. Such was the word of my chief. The king's eyes narrowed, gleaming like gray sword steel coldly. Alone? I... They eyed each other silently, their mutual tribal enmity seething beneath their cloak of formality. Their mouths spoke the cultured speech, the conventional court phrases of a highly polished race, a race not their own. But from their eyes gleamed the primal traditions of the elemental savage. Coe might be the king of Volusia, and the Pict might be an emissary to her courts, But there in the throne hall of kings, two tribesmen glowered at each other, fierce and wary, while ghosts of wild wars and world-ancient feuds whispered to each. To the king was the advantage, and he enjoyed it to its fullest extent. Jaw resting on hand, he eyed the Pict, who stood like an image of bronze, head flung back, eyes unflinching. Across Cull's lips stole a smile that was more a sneer. "'And so I am to come alone.' Civilization had taught him to speak by innuendo, and the Pict's dark eyes glittered, though he made no reply. How am I to know that you come from Kanu? I have spoken, was the sullen response. And when did a Pict speak truth? sneered Ka fully aware that the Picts never lied, but using this means to enrage the man. I see your plan, king, the Pict answered imperturbably. You wish to anger me. By Valka, you need go no further. I am angry enough, and I challenge you to meet me in single battle, spear, sword, or dagger, mounted, or afoot. Are you king or man? Kell's eyes glinted with the grudging admiration a warrior must needs give a bold foeman, but he did not fail to use the chance of further annoying his antagonist. A king does not accept the challenge of a nameless savage, he sneered. "'Nor does the Emperor of Volusia break the truce of ambassadors. "'You have leave to go. "'Say to Kanu that I will come alone.' "'The Pict's eyes flashed murderously. "'He fairly shook in the grasp of the primitive bloodlust. "'Then, turning his back squarely upon the King of Volusia, "'he strode across the hall of society and vanished through the great door. "'Again, Kull leaned back upon the ermine throne and meditated.' So the chief of the council of Picts wished him to come alone. But for what reason? Treachery? Grimly Cull touched the hilt of his great sword, but scarcely. The Picts valued too greatly the alliance with Volusia to break it for any feudal reason. Cull might be a warrior of Atlantis and hereditary enemy of all Picts, but too he was the king of Volusia, the most potent ally of the men of the West. Kull reflected long upon the strange state of affairs that made him ally of ancient foes and foe of ancient friends. He rose and paced restlessly across the hall with the quick, noiseless tread of a lion. Chains of friendship, tribe, and tradition had he broken to satisfy his ambition, and by Valka, god of the sea and the land, he had realized that ambition. He was king of Volusia, a fading, degenerate Volusia, a Volusia living mostly in dreams of bygone glory but still a mighty land, and the greatest of the seven empires. Volusia, land of dreams, the tribesmen called it, and sometimes it seemed to call that he moved in a dream. Strange to him were the intrigues of court and palace, army and people. All was like a masquerade where men and women hid their real thoughts with a smooth mask. Yet the seizing of the throne had been easy. A bold snatching of opportunity, the swift whirl of swords, the slaying of a tyrant of whom men had wearied unto death, short crafty plotting with ambitious statement out of favor at court, and co. Wandering adventurer, Atlantean exile, had swept up to the dizzy heights of his dreams. He was lord of Volusia, king of kings. Yet now it seemed that the seizing was far easier than the keeping. The sight of the Pict had brought back youthful associations to his mind, the free, wild savagery of his boyhood. And now a strange feeling of dim unrest, of unreality, stole over him, as of late it had been doing. Who was he, a straightforward man of the seas and the mountain, to rule a race strangely and terribly wise with the mysticisms of antiquity, an ancient race? I am Kull, said he, flinging back his head as a lion flings back his mane. I am Kull. His falcon gaze swept the ancient hall. His self-confidence flowed back, and in a dim nook of the hall a tapestry moved slightly. Chapter 2 Thus Spake the Silent Halls of Volusia The moon had not risen, and the garden was lighted with torches aglow in silver cressets when Kull sat down on the throne before the table of Kanu, ambassador of the Western Isles. At his right hand sat the ancient Pict, as much unlike an emissary of that fierce race as a man could be. Ancient was Kanu, and wise in statecraft grown old in the game. There was no elemental hatred in the eyes that looked at Kull appraisingly, no tribal traditions hindered his judgments. Long associations with the statesmen of the civilized nations had swept away such cobwebs. Not who and what is this man was the question ever foremost in Kanu's mind, but can I use this man, and how? Tribal prejudices he used only to further his own schemes. And Kull watched Kanu, answering his conversation briefly, wondering if civilization would make of him a thing like the Pict, for Kanu was soft and paunchy many years had stridden across the sky rim since Kanu had wielded a sword. True, he was old, but Kull had seen men older than he in the forefront of battle. The Picts were a long-lived race. A beautiful girl stood at Kanu's elbow refilling his goblet, and she was kept busy. Meanwhile, Kanu kept up a running fire of jests and comments, and Kull, secretly contemptuous of his garrulity, nevertheless missed none of his shrewd humor. At the banquet were Pictish chiefs and statesmen, the latter jovial and easy in their manner, the warriors formerly courteous but plainly hampered by their tribal affinities. Yet Kull, with a tinge of envy, was cognizant of the freedom and ease of the affair, as contrasted with like affairs of the Volusian court. Such freedom prevailed in the rude camps of Atlantis. Kull shrugged his shoulders. After all, doubtless Canu who had seemed to have forgotten he was a-picked as far as time, hoary, custom, and prejudice went, was right, and he, Kull, would better become a Volusian in mind as well as in name. At last, when the moon had reached her zenith, Kanu, having eaten and drunk as much as any three men there, leaned back upon his divan with a comfortable sigh and said, "'No, get you gone, friends, for the king and I would converse on such matters as concern not children.' Yes, you too, my pretty, yet first let me kiss those ruby lips. So, now, dance away, my rose bloom. Canu's eyes twinkled above his white beard as he surveyed Kull, who sat erect, grim, and uncompromising. You are thinking, Cull,' said the old statesman suddenly, that Canu is a useless old reprobate, fit for nothing except to guzzle wine and kiss wenches. In fact, this remark was so much in line with his actual thoughts and so plainly put that Kull was rather startled, though he gave no sign. Kanu gurgled, and his paunch shook with mirth. Wine is red and women are soft, he remarked tolerantly. But, ha-ha, think not old Kanu allows either to interfere with business. Again he laughed, and Kull moved restlessly. This seemed much like being made sport of, and the king's scintillating eyes began to glow with a feline light. "'Aye,' said Kanu equably, "'it takes an old head to stand, strong drink. "'I am growing old, Kull, so why should you young men begrudge me such pleasures as we oldsters must find? "'Ah, me, I grow ancient and withered, friendless and cheerless.'" But his looks and expression failed far of bearing out his words. His rubicund countenance fairly glowed, and his eyes sparkled so that his white beard seemed incongruous. Indeed, he looked remarkably elfin, reflected Cull, who felt vaguely resentful. The old scoundrel had lost all the primitive virtues of his race and of Cull's race, yet he seemed more pleased in his aged days than otherwise. Hark ye, Cull, said Kanu, raising an admonitory finger, 'tis a chancy thing to laud a young man, yet I must speak my true thoughts to gain your confidence. If you think to gain it by flattery, tush, who spoke of flattery? I flatter only to discard.' There was a keen sparkle in Kanu's eyes, a cold glimmer that did not match his lazy smile. He knew men, and he knew that to gain his end he must smite straight with this tigerish barbarian, who, like a wolf scenting a snare, would scent out unerringly any falseness in the skein of his word-web. "'You have power, Cole,' said he, choosing his words with more care than he did in the council rooms of the nation." to make yourself mightiest of all kings and restore some of the lost glories of Volusia. So, I care little for Volusia, though the women and wine be excellent, save for the fact that the stronger Volusia is, the stronger the picked nation. More with an Atlantean on the throne, eventually Atlantis will become united. Cull laughed in harsh mockery. Canu had touched an old wound. Atlantis made my name accursed when I went to seek fame and fortune among the cities of the world. We, they, are age-old foes of the seven empires, greater foes of the allies of the empires, as you should know. Kanu tugged his beard and smiled enigmatically. Nay, nay, let it pass, but I know whereof I speak, and then warfare will cease wherein there is no gain. I see a world of peace and prosperity, man loving his fellow man, the good supreme. All this you can accomplish, if you live. Ha! Kull's lean hand closed on his hilt and he half rose, with a sudden movement of such dynamic speed that Kanu, who fancied men as some men fancy blooded horses, felt his old blood leap with a sudden thrill. Valka, what a warrior! "'Nerves and sinews of steel and fire bound together with the perfect coordination, "'the fighting instinct. That makes the terrible warrior.' "'But none of Kanu's enthusiasm showed in his mildly sarcastic tone. "'Tush, be seated. Look about you. The gardens are empty, "'the seats empty, save for ourselves. You fear not me?' Cole sat back, gazing about him warily. "'There speaks the savage,' mused Kanu. Think you if I planned treachery I would enact it here, where suspicion would be sure to fall upon me? Tut, you young tribesmen have much to learn. There were my chiefs who were not at ease because you were born among the hills of Atlantis, and you despise me in your secret mind because I am a Pict. Tush, I see you as Cull, king of Volusia, not as Cull, the reckless Atlantean, leader of the raiders who harried the Western Isles. So you should see in me not a Pict, but an international man, a figure of the world. Now to that figure, hark! If you were slain tomorrow, who would be king? Kharnoob, Baron of Bilal. Even so, I object to Kharnoob for many reasons, yet most of all for the fact that he is but a figurehead. How so? He was my greatest opponent, but I did not know that he championed any cause but his own. The knight can hear. Answered Kanu obliquely, There are worlds within worlds, but you may trust me, and you may trust Brule the Spear Slayer. He drew from his robes a bracelet of gold, representing a winged dragon coiled thrice, with three horns of ruby on the head. Examine it closely. Brule will wear it on his arm when he comes to you tomorrow night, so that you may know him. Trust Brule as you trust yourself, and do what he tells you to. And in proof of trust, look ye, And with the speed of a striking hawk, the ancient snatched something from his robes, something that flung a weird green light over them, and which he replaced in an instant. The stolen gem, exclaimed Kahl, recoiling. The green jewel from the Temple of the Serpent. Valka, you, and why do you show it to me? To save your life, to prove my trust. If I betray your trust, deal with me likewise. You hold my life in your hand. Now I could not be false to you if I would, for a word from you would be my doom. Yet for all his words the old scoundrel beamed merrily and seemed vastly pleased with himself. But why do you give me this hold over you? asked Kull, becoming more bewildered each second. As I told you, now you see that I do not intend to deal you false, and tomorrow night when Brule comes to you you will follow his advice without fear of treachery. Enough, an escort waits outside to ride to the palace with you, lord. Kull rose. But you have told me nothing. Tush, how impatient are youths. Kanu looked more like a mischievous elf than ever. Go you and dream of thrones and power and kingdoms, while I dream of wine and soft women and roses. And fortune ride with you, King Kull. As he left the garden, Cull glanced back to see Kanu still reclining lazily in his seat, a merry ancient, beaming on all the world with jovial fellowship. A mounted warrior waited for the king just without the garden, and Cull was slightly surprised to see that it was the same that had brought Kanu's invitation. No word was spoken as Cull swung into the saddle, nor as they clattered along the empty streets. The color and gaiety of the day had given way to the eerie stillness of night. The city's antiquity was more than ever apparent beneath the bent silver moon. The huge pillars of the mansions and palaces towered up into the stars. The broad stairways, silent and deserted, seemed to climb endlessly until they vanished in the shadowy darkness of the upper realms. Stairs to the stars, thought Ko, his imaginative mind inspired by the weird grandeur of the scene. Clang, 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 sounded the silver hoofs on the broad moon-flooded streets, but otherwise there was no sound. The age of the city, its incredible antiquity, was almost oppressive to the king. It was as if the great silent buildings laughed at him noiselessly with unguessed mockery. And what secrets did they hold? You are young, said the palaces and the temples and the shrines, but we are old. The world was wild with youth when we were reared. You and your tribe shall pass, but we are invincible, indestructible. We towered above a strange world, ere Atlantis and Lemuria rose from the sea. We shall reign when the green waters sigh for many a restless fathom. Above the spires of Lemuria and the hills of Atlantis, and when the isles of the western men are the mountains of a strange new land. How many kings have we watched ride down these streets before cull of Atlantis was even a dream in the mind of Ka, bird of creation? Ride on, cull of Atlantis. Greater shall follow you. Greater came before you. They are dust. They are forgotten. We stand. We know. We are. Ride, ride on, cull of Atlantis. Cull the king. Cull the fool. And it seemed to cull that the clashing hoofs took up the silent refrain to beat it into the night with hollow re-echoing mockery. Cull the king. Cull the fool. Glow, moon, you light a king's way. Gleam, stars, you are the torches in the train of an emperor. And clang, silver-shod hoofs, you herald that Kull rides through Volusia. Ho, awake, Volusia, it is Kull that rides, Kull the king. We have known many kings, said the silent halls of Volusia. And so in a brooding mood, Kull came to the palace, where his bodyguard, men of the red slayers, came in to take the reign of the great stallion and escort Kull to his rest. There the Pict, still sullenly speechless, wheeled his steed with a savage wrench of the rein and fled away into the dark like a phantom. Cull's heightened imagination pictured him speeding through the silent streets like a goblin out of the Elder World. There was no sleep for Kull that night, for it was nearly dawn, and he spent the rest of the night hours pacing the throne room and pondering over what had passed. Kanu had told him nothing, yet he had put himself in Kull's complete power. At what had he hinted when he said that the Baron of Blau was naught but a figurehead? And who was this Brule who was to come to him by night, wearing the mystic armlet of the dragon? And why? Above all, why had Kanu shown him the green gem of terror, stolen long ago from the temple of the serpent for which the world would rock in wars were it known to the weird and terrible keepers of that temple, and from whose vengeance not even Kanu's ferocious tribesmen might be able to save him? But Kanu knew he was safe, reflected Kull. For the statesman was too shrewd to expose himself to risk without profit. But was it to throw the king off his guard and pave the way to treachery? Would Kanu dare let him live now? Kull shrugged his shoulders. Chapter 3. They That Walk the Night The moon had not risen when Kull, hand to hilt, stepped to a window. The windows opened upon the great inner gardens of the royal palace and the breezes of the night, bearing the scents of spice trees, blew the filmy curtains about. The king looked out. The walks and groves were deserted. Carefully trimmed trees were bulky shadows. Fountains nearby flung their slender sheen of silver in the starlight, and distant fountains rippled steadily. No guards walked these gardens, for so closely were the outer walls guarded that it seemed impossible for any invader to gain access to them. Vines curled up the walls of the palace, and even as Kull mused upon the ease with which they might be claimed, a segment of shadow detached itself from the darkness below the window, and a bare brown arm curved up over the sill. Kull's great sword hissed halfway from the sheath, then the king halted. Upon that muscular forearm gleamed the dragon amulet shown him by Kanu the night before. The possessor of the arm, Pulled himself up over the sill and into the room with the swift, easy motion of a climbing leopard. You are Brule? asked Cull, and then stopped in surprise not unmingled with annoyance and suspicion, for the man was he whom Cull had taunted in the Hall of Society, the same who had escorted him from the Pictish embassy. I am Brule, the Spear Slayer, answered the Pict in a guarded voice, then swiftly, gazing closely in Cull's face, he said, barely above a whisper. Kanamaka Lajarama, Cull started. Ha, what mean you? Know you not? Nay, the words are unfamiliar. They are of no language I ever heard, and yet by Valka somewhere I have heard. Aye, was the Pict's only comment. His eyes swept the room, the study room of the palace. Except for a few tables, a divan or two, and great shelves of books of parchment, the room was barren compared to the grandeur of the rest of the palace. Tell me, king, who guards the door? Eighteen of the red slayers. But how come you, stealing through the gardens by night and scaling the walls of the palace? Brule sneered. The guards of Volusia are blind buffaloes. I could steal their girls from under their noses. I stole amid them and they saw me not nor heard me and the walls, I could scale them without the aid of vines. I have hunted tigers on the foggy beaches when the sharp east breezes blew the mist in from seaward, and I have climbed the steps of the western sea mountain. But come, nay, touch this armlet. He held out his arm, and Cull complied wonderingly, gave an apparent sigh of relief. So, now throw off those kingly robes, for there are ahead of you this night such deeds as no Atlantean ever dreamed of. Brule himself was clad only in a scanty loincloth, through which was thrust a short, curved sword. And who are you to give me orders? asked Kull, slightly resentful. Did not Kanu bid you follow me in all things? asked the Pict irritably, his eyes flashing momentarily. I have no love for you, lord, but for the moment I have put the thought of feuds from my mind. Do you likewise, but come. Walking noiselessly, he led the way across the room to the door. A slide in the door allowed a view of the outer corridor, unseen from without, and the Pict bade Cull look. What see you? Not but the eighteen guardsmen. The Pict nodded, motioned Cull to follow him across the room. At a panel in the opposite wall, Brühl stopped and fumbled there a moment. Then with a light movement he stepped back, drawing his sword as he did so. Cull gave an exclamation as the panel swung silently open, revealing a dimly lighted passageway. A secret passage, swore Cull softly, and I knew nothing of it. By Valka, someone shall dance for this. Silence, hissed the Pict. Brule was standing like a bronze statue, as if straining every nerve for the slightest sound. Something about his attitude made Cull's hair prickle slightly, not from fear but from some eerie anticipation. Then, beckoning, Brule stepped through the secret doorway which stood open behind them. The passage was bare but not dust-covered as should have been the case with an unused secret corridor. A vague gray light filtered through somewhere, but the source of it was not apparent. Every few feet Kull saw doors, invisible as he knew from the outside but easily apparent from within. The palace is a very honeycomb, he muttered. Aye, night and day you are watched, king, by many eyes. The king was impressed by Brule's manner. The Pict went forward slowly, warily half-crouching, blade held low and thrust forward. When he spoke, it was in a whisper, and he continually flung glances from side to side. The corridor turned sharply, and Brule warily gazed past the turn. Look, he whispered, but remember, no word, no sound, on your life. Cole cautiously gazed past him. The corridor changed just at the bend to a flight of steps, and then Cole recoiled at the foot of those stairs lay the eighteen red slayers who were that night stationed to watch the king's study room. Bruel's grip upon his mighty arm, and Bruel's fierce whisper at his shoulder alone kept Kull from leaping down those stairs. "'Silent, Kull, silent in Valga's name,' hissed the Pict. "'These corridors are empty now, but I risked much in showing you that you might then believe what I had to say. Back now to the room of study.' And he retraced his steps, Cull following, his mind in a turmoil of bewilderment. This is treachery, muttered the king, his steel-gray eyes a-smolder. Foul and swift, mere minutes have passed since those men stood at guard. Again in the room of study, Brühl carefully closed the secret panel and motioned Cull to look again through the slit of the outer door. Cull gasped audibly, for without stood the eighteen guardsmen. This is sorcery he whispered, half-drawing his sword. Do dead men guard the king? Aye, came Bruel's scarcely audible reply. There was a strange expression in the Pict's scintillant eyes. They looked squarely into each other's eyes for an instant. Cull's brow wrinkled in a puzzled scowl as he strove to read the Pict's inscrutable face. Then Bruel's lips, barely moving, formed the words. The snake that speaks. Silent, whispered Cull, laying his hand over Brühl's mouth. That is death to speak, that is a name accursed. The Pict's fearless eyes regarded him steadily. Look again, King Kull, perchance the guard was changed. Nay, those are the same men. In Valka's name this is sorcery, this is insanity. I saw with my own eyes the bodies of those men, not eight minutes agone yet there they stand. Bruel stepped back, away from the door, Kull mechanically following. Kull, what know ye of the traditions of this race you rule? Much, and yet little. Volusia is so old. Aye, Brühl's eyes lighted strangely. We are but barbarians, infants compared to the seven empires. Not even they themselves know how old they are. Neither the memory of man nor the annals of historians reach back far enough to tell us when the first men came up from the sea and built cities on the shore. But call, men were not always ruled by men. The king started, their eyes met. Aye, there is a legend of my people and mine, broke in Brule. That was before we of the Isles were allied with Valusia. I in the region of Lion Fang, seventh war chief of the Picts, so many years ago no man remembers how many. Across the sea we came, from the isles of the sunset, skirting the shores of Atlantis and falling upon the beaches of Volusia with fire and sword. Ay, the long white beaches resounded with the clash of spears, and the night was like day from the flame of the burning castles, and the king, the king of Volusia, who died on the Red Sea sands that dim day. His voice trailed off, the two stared at each other, neither speaking, then each nodded. Ancient is Volusia. Whispered Cull. The hills of Atlantis and Mu were isles of the sea when Volusia was young. The night breeze whispered through the open window. Not the free, crisp sea air, such as Brule and Cull knew and revelled in in their land, but a breath like a whisper from the past, laden with musk, scents of forgotten things, breathing secrets that were hoary when the world was young. The tapestries rustled, and suddenly Kull felt like a naked child before the inscrutable wisdom of the mystic past. Again the sense of unreality swept upon him, and at the back of his soul stole dim, gigantic phantoms, whispering monstrous things. He sensed that Brule experienced similar thoughts. The Pict's eyes were fixed upon his face with a fierce intensity. Their glances met. Kull felt warmly a sense of comradeship with this member of an enemy tribe, Like rival leopards turning at bay against hunters, these two savages made common cause against the inhuman powers of antiquity. Brule again led the way back to the secret door. Silently they entered, and silently they proceeded down the dim corridor, taking the opposite direction from that in which they previously traversed it. After a while, the Pict stopped and pressed close to one of the secret doors, bidding Cole look with him through the hidden slot. This opens upon a little-used stair which leads to a corridor running past the study-room door. They gazed, and presently, mounting the stair silently, came a silent shape. Two! Chief Counselor! exclaimed "Cull, By night and with bare dagger! How? What means this, Brule? Murder and foulest treachery! hissed Brule. Nay, as Kull would have flung the door aside and leaped forth, We are lost if you meet him here, for more lurk at the foot of those stairs. Come. Half-running, they darted along the passage. Back through the secret door, Brule led, shutting it carefully behind them, and across the chamber to an opening into a room seldom used. There, he swept aside some tapestries in a dim corner nook, and drawing Cull with him, stepped behind them. Minutes dragged. Cull could hear the breeze in the other room blowing the window curtains about, and it seemed to him like the murmur of ghosts. Then through the door stealthily came Tu, chief counselor of the king. Evidently he had come through the study room door and, finding it empty, sought his victim where he was most likely to be. He came with upraised dagger, walking silently. A moment he halted, gazing about the apparently empty room, which was lighted dimly by a single candle. Then he advanced cautiously, apparently at a loss to understand the absence of the king. He stood before the hiding place and, slay. Cull, with a single mighty leap, hurled himself into the room. Two spun, but the blinding, tigerish speed of the attack gave him no chance for defense or counterattack. Sword steel flashed in the dim light and grated on bone as two toppled backward, Cull's sword standing out between his shoulders. Cull leaned above him. Teeth bared in the killer's snarl, heavy brows a scowl above eyes that were like the gray ice of the cold sea. Then he released the hilt and recoiled, shaken, dizzy, the hand of death at his spine. For as he watched, Tu's face became strangely dim and unreal the features mingled and merged in a seemingly impossible manner, and then, like a fading mask of fog, the face suddenly vanished, and in its stead gaped and leered a monstrous serpent's head. Valka! gasped Cull, sweat beating on his forehead, and again. Valka! Brule leaned forward, face immobile, yet his glittering eyes mirrored something of Cull's horror. Retain your sword, Lord King, said he. There are yet deeds to be done. Hesitantly, Cull set his hand to the hilt. His flesh crawled as he set his foot upon the terror which lay at their feet, and as some jerk of muscular reaction caused the frightful mouth to gape suddenly, he recoiled, weak with nausea. Then, wrathful at himself, he plucked forth his sword and gazed more closely at the nameless thing that had been known as two chief counselor. Save for the reptilian head, the thing was the exact counterpart of a man. A man with the head of a snake. Cull murmured. This, then, is a priest of the serpent god? I too, sleeps unknowing. These fiends can take any form they will. That is, they can, by a magic charm or the like, fling a web of sorcery about their faces as an actor dons a mask so that they resemble anyone they wish to. Then the old legends were true, mused the king. The grim old tales few dare even whisper, lest they die as blasphemers, are no fantasies, By Valka, I had thought I had guessed, but it seems beyond the bounds of reality. Ha, the guardsmen outside the door. They too are snake men. Hold, what would you do? Slay them, said Kull between his teeth. Strike at the skull if at all, said Brule. Eighteen wait without the door, and perhaps a score more in the corridors. Hark ye king, Kanu learned of this plot. His spies have pierced the innermost fastnesses of the snake priests, and they brought hints of a plot. Long ago he discovered the secret passageways of the palace, and at his command I studied the map thereof and came here by night to aid you, lest you die as other kings of Volusia have died. I came alone for the reason that to send more would have roused suspicion. More could not steal into the palace as I did. Some of the foul conspiracy you have seen, snake men guard your door, and that one as two could pass anywhere else in the palace. In the morning, if the priests failed, the real guards would be holding their places again, knowing nothing, nothing remembering, there to take the blame if the priests succeeded. But stay you here while I dispose of this carrion. So saying, the Pict shouldered the frightful things stolidly and vanished with it through another secret panel. Kell stood alone, his mind a-whirl, neophytes of the mighty serpent, ay, how many of his trusted counselors, his generals, were men? He could be certain of whom? The secret panel swung inward, and Bruel entered. You were swift. Aye, the warrior stepped forward, eyeing the floor. There is gore upon the rug, see? Cole bent forward. From the corner of his eye, he saw a blur of movement, a glint of steel. Like a loosened bow, he whipped erect, thrusting upward. The warrior sagged upon the sword, his own clattering to the floor. Even at that instant, Cull reflected grimly that it was appropriate that the traitor should meet his death upon the sliding upward thrust used so much by his race. Then, as Bruhl slid from the sword to sprawl motionless on the floor, the face began to merge and fade, and as Cull caught his breath, his hair a prickle, the human features vanished, and there the jaws of a great snake gaped hideously, the terrible beady eyes venomous even in death. "'He was a snake-priest all that time!' gasped the king. Valka! What an elaborate plan to throw me off my guard! Kanu there, is he a man? Was it Kanu to whom I talked in the gardens? Almighty Valka! His flesh crawled with a horrid thought. Are all the people of Volusia men, or are they all serpents? Undecided he stood, idly seeing that the thing named Brule no longer wore the dragon armlet. A sound made him wheel. Brule was coming through the secret door. Upon the arm upthrown to halt the king's hovering sword gleamed the dragon armlet. Valka, the picked stopped short, then a grim smile curled his lips. By the gods of the seas, these demons are crafty past reckoning, for it must be that one lurked in the corridors, and seeing me go carrying the carcass of that other took my appearance. So I have another to do away with. Hold. There was menace of death in Kull's voice. I have seen two men turn to serpents before my eyes. How may I know if you are a true man? Brule laughed. For two reasons, King Kull. No snake man wears this, he indicated the dragon armlet. Nor can any say these words. And again Kull heard the strange phrase, Kanama Ka lajerama. Kanama Ka lajerama. Kull repeated mechanically. Now, where in Valka's name have I heard that? I have not, and yet, and yet... Aye, you remember, Kull, said Brühl. Through the dim corridors of memory those words lurk. Though you never heard them in this life, yet in the bygone ages they were so terribly impressed upon the soul mind that never dies that they will always strike dim chords in your memory, though you be reincarnated for a million years to come for that phrase has come secretly down the grim and bloody eons since when, uncounted centuries ago, those words were watchwords for the race of men who battled with the grisly beings of the Elder Universe. For none but a real man of men may speak them whose jaws and mouth are shaped different from any other creature. Their meaning has been forgotten, but not the words themselves. True, said Kull, I remember the legends. Valka! He stopped short, staring, for suddenly, like the silence swinging wide of a mystic door, misty, unfathomed reaches opened in the recesses of his consciousness, and for an instant he seemed to gaze back through the vastness that spanned life and life, seeing through the vague and ghostly fog's dim shapes reliving dead centuries, men in combat with hideous monsters, vanquishing a planet of frightful terrors. Against a gray, ever-shifting background moved strange, nightmare forms, fantasies of lunacy and fear, and man, the jest of the gods, the blind, wisdomless striver from dust to dust, following the long, bloody trail of his destiny, knowing not why, bestial, blundering, like a great, murderous child, yet feeling somewhere a spark of divine fire. Kull drew a hand across his brow, shaken, These sudden glimpses into the abyss of memory always startled him. They are gone, said Brule, as if scanning his secret mind. The bird women, the harpies, the bat men, the flying fiends, the wolf people, the demons, the goblins, all save such as this being that lies at our feet and a few of the wolf men. Long and terrible was the war lasting through the bloody centuries since first the first men, risen from the mire of apedom, turned upon those who then ruled the world. And at last mankind conquered so long ago that naught but dim legends come to us through the ages. The snake people were the last to go, yet at last men conquered even them, and drove them forth into the wastelands of the world, there to mate with true snakes, until some day, say the sages, the horrid breed shall vanish utterly. Yet the things returned in crafty guise as men grew soft and degenerate, forgetting ancient wars. Ah, that was a grim and secret war. Among the men of the younger earth stole the frightful monsters of the elder planet, safeguarded by their horrid wisdom and mysticism, taking all forms and shapes, doing deeds of horror secretly. No man knew who was a true man and who false. No man could trust any man yet by means of their own craft they formed ways by which the false might be known from the true. Men took for a sign and a standard the figure of the flying dragon, the winged dinosaur, a monster of past ages, which was the greatest foe of the serpent. And men used those words which I spoke to you as a sign and symbol, for, as I said, none but a true man can repeat them. So mankind triumphed, yet again the fiends came after the years of forgetfulness had gone by. For man is still an ape in that he forgets what is not ever before his eyes. As priests they came, and for that men in their luxury and might had by then lost faith in the old religions and worships. The snake men in the guise of teachers of a new and truer cult built a monstrous religion about the worship of the serpent god, Such is their power that it is now death to repeat the old legends of the snake people, and people bow again to the serpent god in new form, and blind fools that they are, the great hosts of men see no connection between this power and the power men overthrew eons ago. As priests the snake men are content to rule, and yet, he stopped. Go on. Cole felt an unaccountable stirring of the short hair at the base of his scalp. Kings have reigned as true men in Volusia, the Pict whispered, and yet, slain in battle, have died serpents, as died he who fell beneath the spear of lion fang on the red beaches when we of the Western Isles harried the seven empires. And how can this be, Lord Kull? These kings were born of women and lived as men. Thus the true kings died in secret, as you would have died tonight. And priests of the serpent reigned in their stead, No man knowing, Kull cursed between his teeth. Ay, it must be. No one has ever seen a priest of the serpent and lived, that is known. They live in utmost secrecy. The statecraft of the seven empires is a mazy, monstrous thing, said Brule. There the true men know that among them glide the spies of the serpent and the men who are the serpent's allies, such as Kanub, the baron of Blau, yet no man seeks to unmask a suspect lest vengeance befall him. No man trusts his fellow, and the true statesmen dare not speak to each other what is in the minds of all. Could they be sure? Could a snake man or plot be unmasked before them all? Then would the power of the serpent be more than half broken, for all would then ally and make common cause, sifting out the traitors." Kanu alone is of sufficient shrewdness and courage to cope with them. And even Kanu learned only enough of their plot to tell me what would happen, what has happened up to this time. Thus far I was prepared. From now on we must trust to our luck and our craft. Here and now I think we are safe. Those snake men without the door dare not leave their post, lest true men come here unexpectedly. But tomorrow they will try something else, you may be sure." Just what they will do, none can say, not even Kanu. But we must stay at each other's sides, King Kull, until we conquer or both be dead. Now, come with me while I take this caucus to the hiding place where I took the other being. Kull followed the Pict with his grisly burden through the secret panel and down the dim corridor. Their feet, trained to the silence of the wilderness, made no noise. Like phantoms they glided through the ghostly night, Kull wondering that the corridors should be deserted. At every turn he expected to run full upon some frightful apparition. Suspicion surged back upon him. Was this Pict leading him into ambush? He fell back a pace or two behind Bruel, his ready sword hovering at the Pict's unheeding back. Brule should die first if he meant treachery. But if the Pict was aware of the king's suspicion, he showed no sign. Stolidly he tramped along until they came to a room, dusty and long unused, where moldy tapestries hung heavy. Brule drew aside some of these and concealed the corpse behind them. Then they turned to retrace their steps, when suddenly Brule halted with such abruptness that he was closer to death than he knew, for Kull's nerves were on edge. Something moving in the corridor, hissed the Pict. Kanu said these waves would be empty, yet... He drew his sword and stole into the corridor, Kull following warily. A short way down the corridor, a strange, vague glow appeared that came toward them. Nerves a-leap, they waited, backs to the corridor wall, for what they knew not. But Kull heard Brule's breath hiss through his teeth and was reassured as to Bruel's loyalty. The glow merged into a shadowy form, a shape, vaguely like a man it was, but misty and elusive, like a wisp of fog that grew more tangible as it approached, but never fully material. A face looked at them a pair of luminous great eyes that seemed to hold all the tortures of a million centuries. There was no menace in that face with its dim, worn features, but only a great pity. And that face, that face. Almighty gods, breathed Kull, an icy hand at his soul. Aelol, king of Volusia, who died a thousand years ago. Brule shrank back as far as he could, his narrow eyes widened in a blaze of pure horror, the sword shaking in his grip, unnerved for the first time that weird night. Erect and defiant stood Kull, instinctively holding his useless sword at the ready, flesh a crawl, hair a prickle, and yet still a king of kings, as ready to challenge the powers of the unknown dead as the powers of the living. The phantom came straight on, giving them no heed. Kull shrank back as it passed them, feeling an icy breath like a breeze from the arctic snow. Straight on went the shape with slow, silent footsteps as if the chains of all the ages were upon those vague feet, vanishing about a bend of the corridor. Valka! muttered the Pict, wiping the cold beads from his brow. That was no man. That was a ghost. Aye! Cull shook his head wonderingly. Did you not recognize that face? That was Aelol who reigned in Volusia a thousand years ago, and who was found hideously murdered in his throne room, the room now known as the Accursed Room. Have you not seen his statue in the fame room of kings? Yes, I remember that tale now. God's call, that is another sign of the frightful and foul power of the snake priests. That king was slain by snake people, and thus his soul became their slave, to do their bidding throughout eternity." For the sages have ever maintained that if a man is slain by a snake man, his ghost becomes their slave. A shudder shook Kull's gigantic frame. Valka! What a fate! Hark ye! His fingers closed upon Brule's sinewy arm like steel. Hark ye! If I am wounded unto death by these foul monsters, swear that you will smite your sword through my breast, lest my soul be enslaved. I swear! answered Brule, his fierce eyes lighting. And do ye the same by me, Cole? Their strong right hands met in a silent sealing of their bloody bargain. Chapter 4. Masks Cole sat upon his throne and gazed brutally out upon the sea of faces turned toward him. A courtier was speaking in evenly modulated tones, but the king scarcely heard him. Close by, two chief counsellors stood ready at Cull's command, and every time the king looked at him, Cull shuddered inwardly. The surface of court life was as the unrippled surface of the sea between tide and tide. To the musing king, the affairs of the night before seemed as a dream until his eyes dropped to the arm of his throne. A brown, sinewy hand rested there, upon the wrist of which gleamed a dragon amulet. Brule stood beside his throne, and ever the Pict's fierce secret whisper brought him back from the realm of unreality in which he moved. No, that was no dream, that monstrous interlude. As he sat upon his throne in the hall of society and gazed upon the courtiers, the ladies, the lords, the statesmen, he seemed to see their faces as things of illusion, things unreal, existent only as shadows and mockeries of substance. Always he had seen their faces as masks, but before he had looked on them with contemptuous tolerance, thinking to see beneath the masks shallow, puny souls, avaricious, lustful, deceitful. Now there was a grim undertone, a sinister meaning, a vague horror that lurked beneath the smooth masks. While he exchanged courtesies with some nobleman or counselor, he seemed to see the smiling face fade like smoke, and the frightful jaws of a serpent gaping there. How many of those he looked upon were horrid inhuman monsters, plotting his death beneath the smooth mesmeric illusion of a human face? Volusia, land of dreams and nightmares, a kingdom of the shadows, ruled by phantoms who glided back and forth behind the painted curtains, mocking the futile king who sat upon the throne, himself a shadow. And like a comrade, Shadow Brule stood by his side, dark eyes glittering from immobile face, A real man, Brule, and Cull felt his friendship for the savage become a thing of reality and sensed that Brule felt a friendship for him beyond the mere necessity of statecraft. And what, mused Cull, were the realities of life? Ambition, power, pride, the friendship of man, the love of woman, which Cull had never known. Battle, plunder, what? Was it the real Cull who sat upon the throne, or was it the real Cull who had scaled the hills of Atlantis? carried the far isles of the sunset, and laughed upon the green roaring tides of the Atlantean sea. How could a man be so many different men in a lifetime? For Kull knew that there were many Kulls, and he wondered which was the real Kull. After all, the priests of the serpent went a step farther in their magic, for all men wore masks, and many a different mask with each different man or woman, and Kull wondered if a serpent did not lurk under every mask. So he sat and brooded in strange, mazy thought ways, and the courtiers came and went, and the minor affairs of the day were completed, until at last the king and Brule sat alone in the hall of society, save for the drowsy attendants. Cull felt a weariness. Neither he nor Brule had slept the night before, nor had Cull slept the night before that, when in the gardens of Canu he had had his first hint of things to come. Last night, nothing further had occurred after they had returned to the study room from the secret corridors, but they had neither dared nor cared to sleep. Cole, with the incredible vitality of a wolf, had aforetime gone for days upon days without sleep in his wild savage days. But now his mind was edged from constant thinking and from the nerve-breaking eeriness of the past night. He needed sleep, but sleep was farthest from his mind, and he would not have dared sleep if he had thought of it. Another thing that had shaken him was the fact that though he and Bruhl had kept a close watch to see if or when the study room guard was changed, yet it was changed without their knowledge. For the next morning, those who stood on guard were able to repeat the magic words of Bruhl, but they remembered nothing out of the ordinary. They thought that they had stood at guard all night as usual, and Kull said nothing to them to the contrary. He believed them true men, but Brule had advised absolute secrecy, and Kull also thought it best. Now Brule leaned over the throne, lowering his voice so not even a lazy attendant could hear. They will strike soon, I think, Kull. A while ago Kanu gave me a secret sign. The priests know that we know of their plot, of course, but they know not how much we know. We must be ready for any sort of action. Kanu and the Pictish chiefs will remain within hailing distance now until this is settled, one way or the other. Ha, call! if it comes to pitched battle, the streets and castles of Volusia will run red. Cull smiled grimly. He would greet any sort of action with a ferocious joy. This wandering in a labyrinth of illusion and magic was extremely irksome to his nature. He longed for the leap and clang of swords, for the joyous freedom of battle. Then into the Hall of Society came Two again and the rest of the counselors. "'Lord King, the hour of the council is at hand, and we stand ready to escort you to the council room.' Cull rose, and the Councillors bent the knee as he passed through the way opened by them for his passage, rising behind him and following. Eyebrows were raised as the Pict strode defiantly behind the King, but no one dissented. Bruel's challenging gaze swept the smooth faces of the Councillors with the defiance of an intruding savage. The group passed through the halls and came at last to the Council chamber. The door was closed as usual, and the councillors arranged themselves in the order of their rank before the dais upon which stood the king. Like a bronze statue, Bruel took up his stand behind Cull. Cull swept the room with a swift stare. Surely no chance of treachery here. Seventeen councillors there were, all known to him. All of them had espoused his cause when he ascended the throne. Men of Volusia, he began in the conventional manner, then halted. Perplexed, the councillors had risen as a man and were moving toward him. There was no hostility in their looks, but their actions were strange for a council room. The foremost was close to him when Brule sprang forward, crouched like a leopard, Kanamaka la. His voice crackled through the sinister silence of the room, and the foremost counselor recoiled, hand flashing to his robes, and like a spring released, Bruhl moved and the man pitched headlong and lay still while his face faded and became the head of a mighty snake. "'Slay Cull!' rasped the Pict's voice. "'They be all serpent men!' The rest was a scarlet maze." Cowl saw the familiar faces dim like fading fog, and in their faces gaped horrid reptilian visages as the whole band rushed forward. His mind was dazed, but his giant body faltered not. The singing of his sword filled the room, and the onrushing flood broke in a red wave, but they surged forward again, seemingly willing to fling their lives away in order to drag down the king. Hideous jaws gaped at him, terrible eyes blazed into his unblinking, a frightful fetid scent pervaded the atmosphere, the serpent scent that Kull had known in southern jungles. Swords and daggers leaped at him, and he was dimly aware that they wounded him. But Kull was in his element. Never before had he faced such grim foes, but it mattered little. They lived, their veins held blood that could be spilt, and they died when his great sword cleft their skulls or drove through their bodies. Slash, thrust, thrust, and swing. Yet had Cull died there but for the man who crouched at his side, parrying and thrusting, for the king was clear berserk, fighting in the terrible Atlantean way that seeks death to deal death. He made no effort to avoid thrusts and slashes, standing straight up and even plunging forward, no thought in his frenzied mind but to slay. Not often did Cull forget his fighting craft in his primitive fury, but now some chain had broken in his soul flooding his mind with a red wave of slaughter-lust. He slew a foe at each blow, but they surged about him, and time and again Brule turned a thrust that would have slain as he crouched beside Kull, parrying and warding with cold skill, slaying not as Kull slew with long slashes and plunges, but with short overhand blows and upward thrusts. Kull laughed, a laugh of insanity. The frightful faces swirled about him in a scarlet blaze. He felt steel sink into his arm and dropped his sword in a flashing arc that cleft his foe to the breastbone. Then the mists faded, and the king saw that he and Brule stood alone above a sprawl of hideous crimson figures who lay still upon the floor. Falka, what a killing, said Brule, shaking the blood from his eyes. Kull, had these been warriors who knew how to use their steel, we had died here. These serpent priests know naught of swordcraft and die easier than any men I ever slew. Yet had there been a few more, I think the matter had ended otherwise. Kull nodded. The wild berserker blaze had passed, leaving a mazed feeling of great weariness. Blood seeped from wounds on breast, shoulder, arm, and leg. Bruel himself bleeding from a score of flesh wounds, glanced at him in some concern. Lord Kull, let us hasten to get your wounds dressed by the women. Kull thrust him aside with a drunken sweep of his mighty arm. Nay, we'll see this through ere we cease. Go you, though, and have your wounds seen to. I command it. The picked laughed grimly. Your wounds are more than mine, Lord King, he began, then stopped as a sudden thought struck him. By Valka, Kull, this is not the council room. Kull looked about, and suddenly other fogs seemed to fade. Nay, this is the room where Aelol died a thousand years ago, since unused and named accursed. Then by the gods they tricked us after all, exclaimed brule in a fury, kicking the corpses at their feet. They caused us to walk like fools into their ambush. By their magic they changed the appearance of all— Then there is further deviltry afoot, said Kull. For if there be true men in the councils of Volusia, they should be in the real council room now. Come swiftly. And leaving the room with its ghastly keepers, they hastened through halls that seemed deserted until they came to the real council room. Then Cull halted with a ghastly shudder. From the council room sounded a voice speaking, and that voice was his. With a hand that shook, he parted the tapestries and gazed into the room. There sat the councillors, counterparts of the men he and Brule had just slain. And upon the dais stood Kull, king of Volusia. He stepped back, his mind reeling. This is insanity, he whispered. Am I Kull? Do I stand here, or is that Kull yonder in the very truth, and I am but a shadow, a figment of thought? Bruel's hand clutching his shoulder, shaking him fiercely, brought him back to his senses. In Volka's name, be not a fool! Can you yet be astounded after all we have seen? See you not that those are true men bewitched by a snake-man who has taken your form as those others took their forms? By now you should have been slain, and yon monster reigning in your stead, unknown by those who bowed to you. Leap and slay swiftly, or else we are undone. The red slayers, true men, stand close on each hand, and none but you can reach and slay him. Be swift. Cowl shook off the onrushing dizziness, flung back his head in the old defiant gesture. He took a long, deep breath, as does a strong swimmer, before diving into the sea, and then, sweeping back the tapestries, made the dais in a single, lion-like bound. Bruel had spoken truly. There stood men of the Red Slayers, guardsmen trained to move quick as the striking leopard. Any but Kull had died ere he could reach the usurper. But the sight of Kull, identical with the man upon the dais, held them in their tracks, their minds stunned for an instant, and that was long enough. He upon the dais snatched for his sword, but even as his fingers closed upon the hilt, Cull's sword stood out between his shoulders and the thing that men had thought to be the king pitched forward from the dais to lie silent upon the floor. Hold! Cull's lifted hand and kingly voice stopped the rush that had started, and while they stood astounded he pointed to the thing which lay before them, whose face was fading into that of a snake. They recoiled, and from one door came Brule, and from another, Kanu. These grasped the king's bloody hand, and Kanu spoke. "'Men of Volusia, you have seen with your own eyes. This is the true Kull, the mightiest king to whom Volusia has ever bowed. The power of the serpent is broken, and ye be all true men. King Kull, have you commands?' "'Lift that carrion,' said Kull, and men of the guard took up the thing.' Now follow me, said the king, and he made his way to the accursed room. Brule, with a look of concern, offered the support of his arm, but Kull shook him off. The distance seemed endless to the bleeding king, but at last he stood by the door and laughed fiercely and grimly when he heard the horrified ejaculations of the councillors. At his orders the guardsmen flung the corpse they carried beside the others, and motioning all from the room, Kull stepped out last and closed the door. A wave of dizziness left him shaken. The faces turned to him, pallid and wonderingly, swirled and mingled in a ghostly fog. He felt the blood from his wounds trickling down his limbs, and he knew that what he was to do he must do quickly or not at all. His sword rasped from its sheath. Brule, are you there? Aye. Brule's face looked at him through the mist, close to his shoulder, but Brule's voice sounded leagues and eons away. Remember our vow, Brule, and now bid them stand back. His left arm cleared a space as he flung up his sword. Then with all his waning power he drove it through the door into the jam, driving the great sword to the hilt and sealing the room forever. Legs braced wide, he swayed drunkenly, facing the horrified counselors. Let this room be doubly accursed, and let those rotting skeletons lie there forever as a sign of the dying might of the serpent. Here I swear that I shall hunt the serpent men from land to land, from sea to sea, giving no rest until all be slain, that good triumph and the power of hell be broken. This thing I swear, I Cull, King of Volusia." His knees buckled as the faces swayed and swirled. The counselors leaped forward, but ere they could reach him, Kull slumped to the floor and lay still, face upward. The counselors surged about the fallen king, chattering and shrieking. Kanu beat them back with his clenched fists, cursing savagely. Back, you fools! Would you stifle the little life that is yet in him? How, Brule, is he dead or will he live? To the warrior who bent above the prostrate Kull. Dead? sneered Brühl irritably. Such a man as this is not so easily killed. Lack of sleep and loss of blood have weakened him. By Valka he has a score of deep wounds, but none of them mortal. Yet have those gibbering fools bring the court women here at once. Brühl's eyes lighted with a fierce, proud light. Valka, Canu, but here is such a man as I knew not existed in these degenerate days, He will be in the saddle a few scant days hence, and then may the serpent men of the world beware Cull of Volusia. Valka, but that will be a rare hunt. Ah, I see long years of prosperity for the world with such a king upon the throne of Volusia.